Eugene Peterson calls it a cascade of poetry that just tumbles in upon itself. And it's really easy when we hear words like that to think that it's just describing certain people, but it's actually describing uh, not just you and you and you, but y'all. It's describing an experience that we all have in Jesus Christ. And it's the ground of our shift from me to we. In 1832, a 26-year-old French aristocrat got on a boat and headed to America. America was barely 50 years old at the time. He came to study the American penal system, came with his friend Gustave de Beaumont, and when they landed, they noticed, among other things, not just the penal system, but life in America. This was a unique experience, he said. Never seen anything like it. He wrote in a personal letter to a friend that the Americans was, it was the land, he said, comprised of many nations with no national character of its own and yet 10 times happier than our nation. But he noticed in the American way of life a flaw, what he called a mental defect in erroneous judgment. He said it did not exist in other cultures. He'd never seen it, so he didn't have a word. He invented one. He called it individualism. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville, and he compiled his findings into 64 categories, went back to France, holed himself up in an apartment or like that for about nine months and wrote the first half of his now classic democracy in America. Individualism, he said, is a mature and calm feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from fellow creatures and to draw apart with his family and friends. Then, with this little society formed to his taste, he willingly abandons the greater society to look after itself. Individualism, he said, was not the same as selfishness. Selfishness was an evil that we were born into, Tocqueville said. It was a vice of the heart. Individualism was more benign, but if it went unchecked, it would inevitably lead to selfishness. And what evidences did he give that the Americans were caught up in this dis-ease? He said, each American imagines that they come from their own energy, their own efforts. They are not formed by their communities. Americans, he said, overestimate the value of an individual on the community. They have most valuable players is another way to put it. Most Americans, he noted, care very little about their ancestors, and they think not at all about their descendants. And now that I mention it, what is the name of your great-great-grandfather, and where is he buried? Do we even know? Individuals, he said, 
compare themselves with one another, usually in economic terms, and it creates envies and rivalries. When I started to read more of Tokyoville's democracy in America, I started to see America today in a whole different light. He said, the Americans confuse individualism with freedom, and they confuse freedom with autonomy or self-government, such that they always elevate the interests of the one over the needs of the community. And autonomy, he said, causes them to scatter. And when they scatter, they compete. And when they compete, they create the very hatreds that they speak against. And, these are Tocqueville's words, they create the perfect environment for a despot leader or a tyrant. A tyrant arises in a culture that has disintegrated because a tyrant is necessary. Well, I started to think differently a little bit about what was happening in the news. And so one of the first questions I would ask you maybe to uh, uh, put to yourself is, what evidences is there of individualism in your life? It's important to notice that individualists do not abandon communities. Rather, they form communities, but they form them after themselves. And then they join communities, usually on their own terms. They even volunteer in those communities, but only according to their passions and only for as long as they have them. But as soon as their passions fade and their interest changes, they abandon the communities they formed in order to form other ones. What I just said in a sentence too long is that individualists use community to accomplish their own ends. And they are always measuring the communities they belong to by whether or not they are providing benefits or rewards. And on the day they stop, they leave them. So a person may be an individualist all the while being part of a community. It's also important to notice that if you were uh, educated in a Western university, either in the United States, in Europe, or in Canada, this is the culture you were educated in. While you were getting your degree, as I got mine, this is what you were drinking. So any attempt to speak to Americans about curbing their individualism feels to them like an assault on their freedom. 
It's how we think. We are a society that invents ourselves, that determines ourselves, presents ourselves to the community with the profile we want presented. We manage ourselves, regulate ourselves, protect ourselves, and promote ourselves. So it's a hard sell to talk to Americans about a shift from me to we because we always interpret the we in what it does for me. You still there? Because it's really quiet in here right now. It's like I told a dirty joke or something. Individualism is America's other original sin. In the Bible, there's another narrative. In the Bible, there is a great conflict between life and death, between light and darkness, or between wisdom and foolishness. And it is the nature of life or light or wisdom to unite. And it's the nature of death, darkness, or folly to scatter. And so the Lord God brought the woman to the man and joined them, and they became one flesh. And yet when they noticed they were naked, they hid themselves among the trees that were in the garden. It is God's nature to collect. It is the nature of evil to scatter. One of the reasons that humans have lasted as long as we have on this planet is we still know how to gather. But in the last six months, there's been two forces that have scattered us as a church. One of those biological, the other sociological. The biological one has been a thing called COVID. Have you heard of this? This is the disease that turns your closest friends into a health threat. People that you once ate with and lived with become a danger because they might be carrying the virus. And this this is a good thing, isn't it, for us to quarantine when we think um, we might have it? A good thing to wear masks. Someone said to me after the first hour, the shift from me to we is a shift from no mask to mask. <laughs> but there's a residue attached to this. It's caused congregations to scatter into smaller communities. And if a church is any good at transmitting a morning worship service, and this church has been pretty good at that, then it causes people at home to wonder what really is the point of coming back? Should we just trade in our buildings for studios and transmit killer services that we scatter all over the world, and that becomes the new virtual community. In other words, the church that has spent the last 10 years focusing on being missional must now 
defend the idea of gathering. What really is the point of being together? Can you hear the individualist? If I can get from the podcast what I need, do you hear him? Why risk it? The other threat is sociological. Uh, society has become very fragile, um, very, well, what's the word? Opinionated. Have you noticed this? Conversations seem to me more tentative the moment we begin. People start from a certain place, and there are talking points, it seems. And if we do not hit those talking points in the first minute or two, it's like we've lost our audience. I'm reading of families that will not gather for Thanksgiving because of how different members of the family voted. I can only tell you personally from my um, little corner of the world that it has never felt more tentative to stand up here week after week and hope I don't say something that offends somebody. And I know that I have, because you told me. <laughs> and you should. You should. But do you see the point I'm making is the institutions that used to stabilize us in a time like this are themselves overcome with the virus. We have the very dis-ease that God invented us to cure. The physician themselves are sick. So we thought it was a really good time to talk about me to we. Because me to we is a shift from individualism to community. It's a shift from wanting to stand out to wanting to fit in, from being a most valuable player or a model to just being a good spouse or a teammate or a neighbor. And sometimes what makes us stand out makes us hard to live with. It's a shift from pursuing our own careers to pursuing what is best for the community. It's a shift from lawsuits to reconciliation, from relative truth to absolute truth. Now it seems is a really good time for the church to take this up, shall we? I'm gonna, so you might as well nod. I'll start in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. As I said a moment ago, it's 201 words in the original language, and it is a portrait of the way the church lives together. Here's what I mean. There are 15 churches mentioned in the New Testament 
Every one of them but two, Antioch and Jerusalem, have a letter written to them. So of the 13 letters that are written to 13 churches, every one of them is written to a problem. They're fighting, as church people, have you noticed, can do sometime. Only one letter is written to a church, the church, in peacetime, not when they're fighting, just in normal routines, because Paul is trying to describe what this community looks like that Jesus is formed. And that letter is Ephesians. And in the first 12 verses, he gives us the grounding or the basis of our community. This is why this is important, because I think in the last six months, we have gradually unknowingly shifted the ground of our community over onto something else, something less. And we cannot stand unless we get back to the basis where we are formed. I want to do it by pointing your attention to the prepositions and the verbs. The preposition is the word in or through, with, under. They all mean the same thing. So in this long sentence, Paul will say he chose us in Christ. He destined us for adoption through Jesus. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He set forth his will in Christ. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. And we would miss this and just move on over it and to get to the instructions until we remember that Jesus set the definition for what it means to be in. When he said in John chapter 14, do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So to be in Christ is to be to Christ what Christ is to the Father. What Jesus could have said was, I am who I am because of the Father. And the Father is what he is because of me. He cannot be a father lest he has a son. And I cannot be a son unless I have a father. So my identity is wrapped up in the identity of the other person. I am not self-invented. I am not who I say I am. I am what he has made me. My identity is outside of myself. It is not just inside myself. This is massive. Jesus is saying, 
I cannot exist apart from the Father. And the Father cannot be what he is apart from me. We proceed from each other. Why am I going into this? Because that's what it means for us to be grounded in Christ. It doesn't mean that it's the status he gave. He graced us, not after he adopted us. No, no. To be graced is what adoption means. You can't even get in outside of them. When you were born, you were the product of the union of two others who preceded you. Yes? Don't make me explain this. You cannot exist outside of the union of two that came before you. In that union, you were conceived, carried, born, and raised. Your childhood, the fact that you're a sibling to brothers or sisters, came not after you were born. No, no. That was the very ground of your being. You couldn't get into this world apart from being the child. So these words that Paul uses to describe what God has done for us, he chose us and he destined us. He set the marks. He established the limitations. He adopted us into the beloved. He redeemed us or made us new. He forgave us. He gave us an inheritance. These are not things that God does for us. These are things that God is by his nature. There is no way to get them apart from him. And every one of these occur in the plural. He's not saying you were chosen and you were chosen. He's saying y'all were chosen. So there is no way to be chosen and redeemed apart from being in y'all. Are you still tracking? All but one has dropped off. This means that there is a reality that is not your reality. You have a family that is bigger than your family. You have a community that is larger than your circle of friends. Because 
the community that you belong to was established by Christ. It was not established by you. So you can belong to it, but you can't control it. And you can't determine who gets in. No, no. Everyone that God has chosen and destined and adopted and redeemed and forgiven, everyone is in that community. That's a big deal. It reminds me of a conversation Jesus had with his disciples walking along the way. One of them said to Jesus, we saw a man who was casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Way to go. Jesus said, don't stop him. Everyone who is not opposed to you is for you. I think I hear him say, don't stop him because you can pick your friends, but you can't choose your community. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your community. Your community is not chosen by what you have done. It's chosen by what God has done for you and the rest. That's your community. So you may choose your friends according to your preferences, your convictions, the color of your skin, your interests, your agenda, the cause, the vision. You can choose your friends according to that, but you can't choose your community because God determines your community. And sometimes your little circle of friends gets in the way of the greater community. You can form circles around your convictions. And because everyone in your circle is saying the same thing, tell yourself that you're right. But there are people in your community who disagree with you. People in your community who don't even like you. There are people in your community who offend you, God forbid. Because there is a reality that is not your reality. Jesus, your mother's outside. She wants to talk to you. Jesus said, who is my mother? Oh, no. Don't go there. Preach that on Mother's Day. He said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers, my sisters? 
It is they who do the will of my Father. Do you hear what he just did to your boundaries? Jesus did not just blow your family up. He didn't just say your family's not important. He just said your family's bigger than you think it is. He blew the walls down. He said, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is a member of your family, whether we like them or not. <laughs> oh, this is a delightful idea. I got a text yesterday from a basketball coach. It went something like this. There was no introduction. He just said, Pastor Steve, in Philippians chapter 4, oh no, verse 2, Paul pleads with Yodia and Suntuke to get along. He tells them to end their disagreement because Paul said, both of them are useful to me in my ministry and both are partakers in the gospel. So it sounds like two sisters are fighting in Christ. What is the meaning of this? The end. Well, it's one thing to get that text when you're in your office and you're surrounded by your books or around really smart friends. It's another to get it in the car while you're waiting for your wife to come out of some place. But you guys, it took me back to this very idea. Of course there are sisters fighting in Christ. Of course there are brothers that don't agree about something. Of course there's tension in the body of Christ. It's, that happens. But community is not something that waits until we resolve it. Community is a fact established in Jesus Christ. Now deal with it. You must settle your disputes in Christ. You will still have them. But you must not fall back on some other idea of community as being only the people who are bound to this cause or have this belief system. Oh, you must allow for differences that are wide and deep. And you must default to the union that you have in Christ. Because your ideas of community are too small to make you happy. Uh, last... Um, Last month, I did a funeral here, right here, for a woman in our church. She was in her early 90s, born out of wedlock. Her mother realized quickly in the first couple of months that she could not raise her. So she gave the baby away to a very godly family who raised the baby. And she thought for the longest time that she was the only child of the mother. It was not till several decades later 
she learned there were others. She learned that her mother got her life back together again and had other children. She wanted to meet her mother. She wanted to know her siblings. And those who talked about her early history told how in just a very beautiful afternoon, they met one place, I think it was Florida, where for the first time, she got to be in a room with siblings she did not know she had. Oh, we have them too. We do. We don't even like some of them. But we have them because of what Christ has done. We uh, sang a song at the beginning of the service. As we sang it, I recognized it as coming from Revelation chapter 5. Here is what actually happened. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? He is. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the elders. And the elders sang a new song that said, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign forever and ever. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands in ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled that throne. And in a loud voice, they said, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and every living creature in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and in the sea and all of them were singing to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the creature said, amen. Oh man, we are joined together through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. We have no union except through Jesus Christ. Any community that is not anchored in Jesus Christ comes from our own imaginations, usually from something we were looking for in the past and have not found. And so this morning, I've given you a couple of questions throughout this message that I would love for you to wrestle with. If we'll put those on the screen. I didn't write them down. I wrote them, but I didn't write them down. I asked you earlier to list the ways or the evidence that individualism has maybe crept into your own life. I ask you now to... Consider the idea of belonging, what your 
definition of that might be and how is that like or unlike what Paul just described in Ephesians chapter one. And finally, if you were to shift from me to we, what would you first have to unlearn to get started? Jesus. There was a sense in this room that we were born into a way of life that is too small for us. Oh, and we want more. And we clamor for it with little circles that we have formed. And still the heart wants more. Would you lift our eyes to a vision of the community, the body of Christ that is much larger and more diverse and deeper historic than the little ones we have formed? We want it. Would you help us, please? Give us the courage to seek it.